You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this this week? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, spring, but there is a blizzard today. Well, that's how you know it's spring in Montana. Short-term blizzard now, sunny blue sky, probably 60 degrees out there. You got to strip off your shirt, run out there, and enjoy it while you can? You know, 50 or 60 degrees is pretty much the... Uh, historically traditionally the place in the in the entire northwest where you will start seeing guys with their shirts off yeah. about 50 degrees that's when you put on the uh the cargo shorts pop the top get out there and do a little yard work or just walk around downtown with which your is, hacky sack yep. yeah i don't know maybe 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 that's what we do after this what do you think wrap this thing up i got no plans just take a stroll around downtown maybe we knock this thing out in 20 minutes and uh we go out, get out there, catch ourselves some some rays. Maybe play a little disc golf. Okay, slacklining. Could we do some slacklining? I see. I knew that it wouldn't take long for you to get around to slacklining. You, you'd manage to turn every conversation in that direction eventually. Well, I mean, are we gonna are we gonna do this like self-respecting denizens of the Mountain West or not? Good point. Get out there, do a little slackline. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by MMA Pack the subscription box service just for MMA fighters and fans. I just got an email this morning, in fact, from Jeremy, who runs MMA Pack, letting us know all the stuff that they put in the boxes of gear that got sent out to subscribers over the weekend. The boxes are all all a little different, but this month's haul includes a mixture of stuff like a Rev Gear t-shirt, a Nawaza hat, Rev Gear MMA gloves, premium MMA wraps, sheath anti-chafing underwear, which frankly sounds amazing, and enjoy choke BJJ shirt, which I, I can only assume is a, a play yeah. on the uh, Coca-Cola logo. Some defend antibacterial soap and uh, glove odor eaters. So it sounds like people probably got their money's worth. That's right, Chad. The subscription boxes get mailed out at the beginning of every month. And like we've been saying for a few weeks now, once you sign up and agree to pay the low price of $39 a pop, you'll start getting around 100 bucks worth of MMA gear in the mail every month, including select high-quality clothing, training equipment, accessories, and supplements. The stuff in the individual boxes is always changing, but it always sounds like a pretty good bargain. If that sounds good to you, all you have to do is go to MMAPack.com to sign up, then sit back and let the stuff start rolling in. And another thing, right now, MMA Pack is offering a pretty sweet introductory offer exclusively for our listeners. Just go to the website mmapack.com right now to check out the particulars and enter the promo code co-main-event all one word to save 20% off your first pack again just go to mmapack.com to sign up that's p-a-c-k mma pack we got music again this week from our guy dion rodriguez a music producer from deltona florida thanks to him for that and if you like what you hear you can check him out at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7 that's the letter z and the number seven. Of course it is. B-Beads seven. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event pod. Well, man, maybe I shouldn't even say as usual because last week was hashtag ain't shit going on. Next week probably will be again. I don't know. Our style is impetuous, unpredictable. Is that what you're saying? As we do sometimes, three rounds this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, 
You know how when something surprising happens, we say something like, well, that's why they have the fights. In the case of Rampage Jackson versus King Mo 2, you know what? They probably didn't actually have to have this fight. And in round number two, remember when Chris Weidman seemed like the future of the middleweight division? Those were weird times. And in round number three, can Anthony Johnson and Daniel Cormier do more than just keep John Jones' belt warm for him? Maybe we'll get some clues this weekend at UFC 210. All that plus just saying stuff, are you fucking kidding me? And our long-lost friend Sir Nigel Longstock is going to stop by to lead us in a game of some Master Tweet Theater, which uh, should go a long way to satisfying the, uh, the rabid Sir Nigel Longstock fans out there, of which there are some, surprisingly enough. As many as a few. But right now, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Storm Fletcher, who right, oh, I assume is the state champion in whatever weight class he wrestles in. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and is going to let you know about it within two minutes of meeting you. Storm Fletcher writes, with Cody Garbrandt's recent comment about making 125 to fight the most dangerous or the most mighty of mice, Demetrius Johnson, can we expect to see more fighters competing in two divisions dominantly? with guys like Cowboy Cerrone, Conor McGregor, Old Man Edgar, Holly Holm, and a fair amount of others who can make two different weights and still perform well. Do you see this becoming a trend that will further people's bottom line as far as pay if they can hold two spots on the most legitimate of rankings in the UFC? Please philosophize. Uh, I think we should talk first about Cody Garbrandt's offer to go down to flyweight and yes, fight. because to me it seems like kind of a classic blunder. Oh, you think it's a blunder? Well, it's... The it's something we've seen before, have we not? Well, usually, what happens is somebody before they get a belt will start talking about the multiple right. divisions they're going to be champion in, and we're all like, "Whoa, come on, man!" It's a little Brandon Vera style. It is to which I would say at least Cody Garbrandt has completed the first leg right. of the journey. He does, but has yet he, to defend it. He has yet to defend it, and then didn't he also turn around and go one better and say that he wanted to be a three division champion? Yes. I think he did. So. He he completed the first part of the journey, which is something Brandon Vera never did before he started talking about being a two-division champion. But then Garbrandt went ahead and and doubled down by adding the third division, so maybe they're comparable. Yes. And it just seems like, you know, time is a flat circle is the feeling <laughs> I get whenever I hear somebody going on about that. As far as the part of the question of can it maximize somebody's bottom line, I guess I would say it should. Like, it should be of more value to the UFC if you are somebody who can fight and fight well in multiple weight classes. But I don't think that that's really the way the UFC pay structure works. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you thought of it as a blunder because when I first heard about the idea of Garbrandt going down to flyweight to fight Demetrius Johnson, my first thought was, well, that sounds amazing. Hashtag would watch. And second of all, like, even though that might prove to be a tougher fight than than you know whoever they would they would drag out to to get the mighty mouse to fight to set the Anderson Silva uh consecutive title defense record or whatever it is it would also probably be like i would assume more lucrative for him don't you think like right now if you're Demetrius Johnson like we've said a lot before, we're at the point where we're going to start going door to door to find 125 pound men for you to fight. Right. Secondly, they keep stashing you down on UFC on Fox cards, so uh, you're not getting a pay per view bonus. I assume I don't have don't have any knowledge of what Demetrius Johnson's contract is, but I think he said before that his contract does not include pay per view bonuses. Okay. In general, well, maybe that's good for him. But I, I mean, I, my thought would be Cody Garbrandt, even though he's kind of a newcomer, 
that would be a fight you might be able to put on pay-per-view. I don't know if yeah. it would be the main event, but like a co-main event slot. To me, that, that'd be like as interesting and marketable a fight for Demetrius Johnson as you could dredge up right now. Yeah, it'd be good for Demetrius Johnson. The question is for Cody Garbrandt, are you planning on being the flyweight champion? Or are you just planning on that one fight? Because then we get into a familiar scenario that we have seen play out uh, very recently. We're watching it play out as we speak. That's right. Continues to play out, you might say. So, yeah. I mean, it's while it seems like the UFC should really like these fighters who can who are really flexible and could be used in multiple weight classes, I also get the sense that at some point the UFC just sees it as kind of a pain in the ass to deal with. And it doesn't seem like just because you provide that extra value that you are going to be paid commensurately with providing that extra value. It just doesn't seem like how the UFC views things. Right, yeah, I don't even think that they conceive of it that way, uh, unfortunately. Um, next question this week comes to us from Ross in Ohio, who writes, so I'm sitting here watching WrestleMania. Of course you are. And the opening match, and in the opening match, we see the use of an armbar, a triangle choke, an omoplata, and a rear naked choke. I understand the cross-section of MMA and pro wrestling fans overlap, but do you guys feel like this is a savvy scripting by the WWE or a bastardization of the gentle art to add legitimacy to quote unquote sports entertainment, please discourse. Now, Ben, to me, this is a multifaceted question because number one, I think Ross from Ohio is right that in recent years we have seen uh, the style of professional wrestling in America become a little bit more influenced by mixed martial arts. However, if you circle back through the annals of history, you'll, you will note that Professional wrestling and mixed martial arts essentially share, the as the same grandfather, legitimate submission grappling. So I think you can easily make the case that these submission moves were common in professional wrestling before MMA was even invented. It just so happens that we went through several iterations of professional wrestling where, like, in the 80s, Hulk Hogan wasn't going to slap an omoplata on your ass. He was going to drop the leg. He was going to go with the right. big boot and the leg drop. So we drifted away from that style. Now, with the popularization of MMA, you start to see, I think, professional wrestling guys borrow again from that style uh, because, obviously, MMA is more popular in America than, like, WWE pay-per-view or WWE Network is. Um, so I would say yes and no. As for the... Part of the question of whether or not it's savvy by WWE or it's a bastardization of the gentle art, um, I don't know. I don't know if I have an opinion. I know that a lot of times when a professional wrestler tries to bust out a mixed martial arts move, they don't necessarily look like savvy veterans while they're doing it. And so they're not exactly nailing the omoplata? Well, you know, The Undertaker has that, what does he call it, like Heaven's Gate, which is essentially like a... What are you, I'm going to appeal to your Brazilian jiu-jitsu knowledge now. The, like, the choke where you basically choke a guy with your own shin. Like a go-go plata. Yeah, and he has like an arm bar that he does while he's, while he's doing it. Thing is, though, Undertaker doesn't necessarily nail it every time. Okay, but the, to worry about it as a bastardization of the gentle art would be like, I don't know, is it a bastardization of the sweet science of boxing uh, when... You know, Ric Flair is out there winging haymakers at uh, the back of someone's head. I don't, I don't really feel like that's that big of a concern. I think it kind of it kind of makes sense, especially you know, you know, a lot of those WWE guys are MMA fans. You know, they're watching it. It makes sense that they would come up with ways to incorporate that stuff. You see it in like the the clips I've seen of Japanese pro wrestling. They have been incorporating more realistic looking stuff there for a long time. So. 
it's not really that surprising that they would let there would be some kind of bleed over uh, from those. I'm always surprised, like when a day like WrestleMania Day comes along. Did you watch WrestleMania yesterday? Of course I did. Did you Did you sit here alone and watch it? Oh, I went to Gilman's house. Okay, that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, so I watched it with with him, our other friend McMacken, Gilman's four children, and two dogs. Nice, nice. Uh, I feel like, you know, I'm sitting there and I can't get away from it on the Twitter feed. It's just the granddaddy of them all, man. Yeah. Biggest day of the year. I I understand that. Uh, and that kind of stuff reminds me of how many, like how how the crossover is so great, way greater than between MMA and boxing, which I think is the, the people, I think make that assumption too often that those are the two audiences that are the same, that those are the audiences that are competing for the same uh, eyeballs, and they're not really. It's way more between the WWE and MMA, and not even right. necessarily competing. They kind of stay away from each other in a lot of senses, and there's plenty of room for them. They both clearly offer a different product, a different service to the viewer. So I guess there's no reason why you can't have WWE people incorporating MMA stuff. It's not like it makes people think the Omoplata is any less real when it, you actually see it in a fight. You know, I think that MMA still holds that ability to, as like the ultimate truth serum for a lot of martial arts philosophies and, and styles. Uh, I don't think it hurts anybody to just have some fun with that stuff in spandex and tights and whatever. Yeah, you know what is always amazing to me, and I think that you're right about the the overlap of MMA fans and professional wrestling fans. And if if you started watching MMA in America with those early UFCs like I did... Like, I have to think that for a lot of people, a big part of the appeal was sort of like a pro wrestling come to life, like a pro wrestling gone real appeal, because that's kind of the the vibe that those early UFCs had. Uh, and it always surprises me today in 2017, what just to use a professional wrestling term, what unbelievably huge marks everyone in professional wrestling seems to be for mixed martial arts. Like you see a picture of the undertaker when he's walking around in his street clothes, hundred percent chance he's wearing a roots of fight t-shirt every time <laughs> he is wearing one. And like, it's weird. It's like, even they acknowledge that what MMA is, is sort of the real version of the stuff that they do, which to me, I mean, I don't know if we're still involved in this, idea where we're supposed to protect the business and like maybe professional wrestling could, should pretend that it's real. Cause that seems like kind of a fanciful notion at this point. But I always think like, man, I don't know if it's a good look for professional wrestling when all of the dudes in your sport are like, Oh yeah, man, we love the MMA. Like that's, it's so cool. Like, it seems to me like they should have a little bit more of a chip on their shoulder about it. Kind of. You think so? I just think that it's clear enough to the audience that they're offering such different products. Like I remember once being asked to do like some, like years ago, some weird panel on like Huffington Post Live kind of thing about MMA and wrestling. And I can't remember what they told me it was going to be, but it didn't actually feel like it was that. And I was like the one MMA uh, guy and a bunch of like pro wrestling dudes on there. And one of the guys at one point was just like, you know, I've seen like MMA matches before and some of them were boring. And I was just like, well, yeah, well, that's Sport. a given. It's sports. That's a given. Sometimes it's going to be boring. Um, That's just kind of part of it. But, you know, he, his kind of like surprise at that, like why do people watch this when sometimes it's boring? Uh, that kind of helped me understand a little bit the what the different audiences are getting from the the different types of sports entertainment. Right. 
And I think that's fine. I mean, I think that there's plenty of people that can enjoy both or enjoy one a little more or only enjoy one. Um, but I don't know. I It helped me at least understand, like, okay, so that's it a little more. Like, I see. You you feel like pro wrestling can promise you something and deliver it uh, a little more consistently because they can just make it up. Right. Which there's nothing wrong with that. No. Uh, I still think it's a weird move, like, that it seems like professional wrestlers are even acknowledging, like, yeah, we all know that MMA is is sort of, like, the cooler version of what we're all pretending to do. I'm, I'll just be satisfied. It seems like they have stopped, at least to some extent. Maybe it has to do with the CM Punk experiment being like, well, yeah, I would have definitely gone into MMA if that had been around, like, when I was coming up and I'd be a champion by now. Right. Uh, like, you'd see a lot more of the old pro wrestlers do that. Like, oh, I just, it just wasn't around when I was coming up. Otherwise, yeah, I'd definitely have done that. And now maybe it seems like, okay, we're acknowledging you went into this and not that. And there were, there were reasons for all of that. UFC 185-pound champion Stone Cold Steve Williams. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Rob Garside. He writes, in this era of super fights where frankly silly matchups such as Rockhold versus Verdum are being considered, why no one is talking about a battle of two MMA greats almost both in their prime? Of course I am talking about the match of, of the ages, Jacare, Jacare, Jacare versus Damian Maya matchup. Both are on excellent streaks. Both are the pinnacle of MMA jiu-jitsu. Crucially and often overlooked for the current realm of super fight booking, both have actually fought at the same weight class and now have been top contenders when fighting there. Is it this just me or wouldn't this fight be awesome discourse? Please, Ben, this is like a slow pitch softball right down the middle of the Ben Folk's plate. Yes. The answer is yes. This would be awesome. But the the two things I would say about it is one you would be taking these guys and distracting them from the thing that they both really want right now, it seems, which is title shots in, in different divisions, and both have strong cases for title shots in those different divisions. It would be, you know, a a really interesting kind of one-off fight that I guess you would just have to financially make it worth their while, and I don't see the UFC doing that because right. I see it being the kind of fight that is going to appeal to the that really hardcore niche uh, aspect of the fan base that you got those people anyway so the UFC is not going to shell out a whole bunch of extra money just to get a fight that those people are going to geek out over although we would geek out over it because it would be awesome but then that leads me to point number two do you remember when Demi and Maya fought Jake Shields do you remember that fight vaguely they went five rounds went to decision and I remember watching it and being like this is kind of awesome this is kind of an awesome fight right here uh, and then looking on the Twitters and seeing a lot of people being like, this sucks. This is a boring-ass fight. And maybe that's just what would happen in a fight like Jacques Ray versus Demi possibility. Again, legitimate sports. Again, legitimate legitimate, sports. due to legitimate sports. Uh, I would say, and I think you're right about all that stuff, and definitely would watch. Uh, but it almost seems like Damian Maya versus Jacare Souza is the exact opposite of a Conor McGregor, Floyd Mayweather type situation in that if indeed we do get, you know, the, 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 if that fight comes to fruition, it will be only because everyone is going to make so much money. Damian Maya versus Jacare Souza almost certainly will not hot, will not happen amid the present landscape because there's no money in it. So to me, it's just sort of like the exact opposite thing. Like an, another, an awesome fight between two good, two good guys that we would like to see fight. But the financial reality of it is it would be a huge left turn for either of those guys uh, for probably not much 
compensation. Yeah, the only way you could get this to happen is if the UFC were purchased by like one of the, like a an eccentric billionaire who was really into jujitsu, who was also wait, didn't a we are, didn't we just nerd. do that? <laughs> Isn't that, the, isn't that the guys who owned the UFC just previous to the guys who own the UFC now? No, you're going to have to get a lot more eccentric uh, and a lot more into jiu-jitsu. As um, far as billionaires go, I feel like the Fertitas are fairly eccentric. Didn't they have really? it written into their contract that they would uh, settle disputes between the two of them with a submission grappling match Man, for, refereed by Dana White? For billionaire stuff, that's just kind of par for the course. I guess that's true. It's not like an ex-machina situation where you're living in a weird, secluded mansion trying to create a female robot but uh you're right it is not that it is not that yet um although in fairness we don't know what they're up to now <laughs> okay all right fine you just you want to <laughs> start this whisper campaign against the fertitas i see next question this week comes to us from joe mizell who writes i know i'm a little late but do you guys think mma's goofy uncle mike goldberg will be coming to the family summer barbecue to announce his new gig since getting laid off don't touch that tater salad and dolores uncle mike just landed a surprise commentary gig alongside jimmy rogan for the bellator pay-per-view uh if you all could please discuss this topic i have given thanks it seems like there's a lot of hints lately being dropped there's that a lot of smoke mike goldberg is going to end up over there in bellator I just asked why. Well, that's the thing, man. I think we should talk about this for a couple minutes before we move on. Like, is it a good idea for Bellator to hire Mike Goldberg? And, like, nothing against Mike Goldberg, who I think is is probably a good guy in his personal life uh, and served as the, you know, play-by-play man for the UFC for years. But I feel like the only reason to do that if you're Bellator is to try to trick people into thinking you're the UFC. Like, if people landed on you by accident, they would be like, oh, it's two guys fighting. It sound, I hear the familiar voice of the guy who calls the UFC must be watching the UFC. Other than that, I just don't know why you would do it. Yeah, and I don't see a problem that really needs fixing with Bellator's announced team right now. and Or at least a problem that would be fixed by adding Mike Goldberg. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not a huge fan. Like, I never thought Mike Goldberg was really great at that job. I think that maybe... He's still got more shit than he deserved just because once MMA fans decide that you suck, that they are going to just heap shit upon you until you are fired. And then they're going to get suddenly nostalgic about you. But I don't like when I watch Bellator, I find that the commentary team is perfectly serviceable. It does a good job at times. At times, you know, more technical and serious than the UFC's broadcast has been uh, at some points in the past. So I, I don't know why you would really feel the need to mess with it. It feel, and I've said this before about Bellator, but like it feels like a wrong turn for Bellator to me to like position yourself as offering nothing more than a shittier version of what the UFC already does. Yeah. And I feel like if you bring in Mike Goldberg, then you just like you kind of slammed the door on yourself in that regard, which is always one of the things I thought about Strike Force too. Like until the very end of days over there when they started trying to pull off like heavyweight Grand Prix and whatnot, one of the things that I thought always bugged me about strike force was it kind of presenting itself as a shittier version of the ufc when like you should try to be a little bit different which is one of the things that here and there i feel like bellator has done in a smart way is like sometimes not taking itself as seriously as the ufc and uh you know for better or worse uh offering like kind of a legend circuit uh oftentimes for worse but at least like it gives you a, a different product than what you get over there in the ufc which i think is you know, it's kind of smart to differentiate yourself in those ways. And so you bring in Mike Goldberg, man. You just start looking like a kind of like a generic UFC clone. Like UFC is on the is on the rack. 
and or on the shelf in the in the convenience store and right next to it is just the white can that says beer right <laughs> and if you're bellator you don't want to be the white can that says beer no you want to be the energy drink that also has alcohol in it somehow and is clearly marketed to children indeed all right that's going to do it for listener mail this week if you have a question a comment a concern that you would like to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks you know how to do it you go to the website co-mainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there you can sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on all the news and notes that we miss on the days that we're not recording the podcast it's short it's informative we would love to think it's funny and if you don't like it as you know by now it's really easy to unsubscribe as for right now though we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one Well, Ben, this weekend at Bellator 175, Muhammad Lawal and Quinton Jackson, for whatever reason, renewed their rivalry uh, from 2014 when they fought back at Bellator 120. Uh, and that original fight resulted in a unanimous decision win for Rampage Jackson. This new installment, which looked a lot like the first one, except everyone was a couple years older, uh, resulted in a unanimous decision win for Muhammad Lawal after he came out there and... I guess you could say slammed the door in the third round to kind of salt away this decision victory. So you're saying trilogy? Is that where you're going? Well, we're one and one here now, aren't we? Uh, but there are some, in all seriousness, uh, extenuating circumstances here after the fight. This was reportedly Quentin Jackson's final fight on his Bellator deal. So maybe we start off talking a little bit about him and then uh, we can talk about King Mo uh, maybe in the second half of this round. But uh you know, Bella, uh, Rampage has been fighting over there in Bellator, Ben, since 2013. Uh, this was his first loss, I believe, right, in the in the promotion. Yes. Although, after reigning as the uh, as the catchweight champion over there in Bellator MMA, you could maybe make the case that he didn't face a lot of the stiffest competition. Uh, he gets handed this loss by Muhammad Lawal after weighing in at uh, you know 250 plus pounds, 38 years old, having run the course of his Bellator contract. Uh, what, if any, future do you think you see for Quentin Rampage Jackson? Because I feel like the answer to that question is maybe not as cut and dried as it should be, or we might think. No, I, I would love to see MMA leave him alone forcibly, if need be, to let him be happy. Because clearly, he does not like MMA. He has never liked it. Right, yeah, it was pretty eye-opening during, I believe it was on the MMA hour, uh, the week before this fight when they asked him, or was it with ESPN? I don't know. Somebody, I think it was ESPN. Somebody asked him what if he had regrets or whatever, and he said his biggest regret was just getting started in this damn sport in the first place. Yes. Which, you start saying stuff like that, it does, like, cast things in a in a different and less humorous light, I Yeah, well, and, you know, he's kind of always had this attitude toward MMA where he he hates it until he does something else and then realizes, okay, they still love me there. I can still always turn a buck there. And I think when he actually gets in there to fight, I, I believe he likes that part still, at least as much as anybody can like it. The training, clearly, he's not in love with. I think you see that in his 253-pound frame when he stepped in there, uh, looking a little soggy around the edges. And you start to think, like, there's always questions about his how seriously he took his training and how... Uh, committed he was in training camp when you show up looking like that 
at his age, then it starts to seem like your heart's not really in this anymore. And there were times when his heart wasn't in it, even kind of during his his prime. There's, that's always, I think, going to be a question: is if he ever reached what he was capable of, or if his own like fluctuating interest in the sport might have hurt his accomplishments in the sport. And he still ended up being a hell of a fighter over seventeen damn years. Uh, devil's advocate question, though: Is it different? Is the the Rampage Jackson attitude about MMA different than the Diaz brothers' that attitude about MMA? Because I think it was just on last week's show that we talked about the Diaz brothers' uh, sort of pragmatic attitude about MMA being one of the things we liked about them. Is the stuff that Rampage Jackson does any different? Because I feel like we kind of uh, uh, we feel like that that's a reason to to dis, not necessarily dislike Rampage, but like uh, we use it as more of a pejorative when we talk about Rampage. Is it just results based or what? Well, I think the difference is that if the Diaz brothers never fought MMA again, I still think they'd be in the gym doing something. You know, they might just be doing jujitsu, might not be boxing, hitting all these hitters in uh, sparring rounds over and over again. But I think that'd still be about that life. And I think Rampage, if he retired and decided, you know, if he had like some kind of lucrative deal where he could go and never have to fight again and get paid to stream video games or something, I think he'd never lace up a pair of gloves again. Right. Just because it never seemed like he enjoyed that part of it. Uh Let's be real, though. This sport is not just going to leave Quentin Rampage alone no. to go live out his golden years. No, it is not. Like, doing whatever he would like. Uh, he went out of the UFC in 2013 on the heels of three straight losses. Uh, but then, you know, as I said, put it back together for five straight wins in Bellator. And now this loss to King Mo and what might turn out to be his last fight over in Bellator. Does the WMEIMG-owned UFC, in your opinion, Ben extend the invite to Rampage Jackson to come back because while the proof may not be in the actual fighting, uh, I think there's still some interest in this guy, you know, whether good or bad. Yeah, and especially I could see them deciding, like, you know what? You throw Rampage in there as a heavyweight, and you could find a couple fights that he could win. He'll he'll bring some eyeballs. And I guess maybe that's what makes me the saddest about it is that I can see how, practically speaking, that would seem like a thing that makes sense for everybody. And yet it would just feel like one of those, like, you know that this relationship between you and, like, your girlfriend or something is over and you keep just dragging it out because no one wants to be the one to make the final cut. That's what it seems like is going on there with Rampage. I wish, I just wish he could find a way to stream video games and be completely wonderfully happy because i don't know have you ever seen when he did like any of the clips of him streaming the video games no uh -uh. it's the happiest you'll ever see him really he's just filled with mirth <laughs> people love his 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 banter as he's screaming these video games where he's playing like grand theft auto and stuff i guess it just seems like it's kind of a sad commentary on this sport where we're like okay this guy still has a name he doesn't really enjoy doing it that much though the performances are not nearly what they once were but we think people will still pay despite everything that says they shouldn't. Um, so we're just going to keep doing it, just drearily marching forward one step at a time. Well, let's talk a little bit about King Mo, too, because he obviously comes out on the uh, the winning end of things here in this Bellator fight. I feel like King Mo got to be 36 years old without me really noticing. Like, you know, King Mo is one of those guys where he's obviously a super smart guy. He's a he's a student of the game, 
when you talk to King Mo, you come away with this feeling like, oh, okay, this guy, like, uh, he's one of the guys who understands this sport at a kind of a deeper level. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, though, I feel like his entire career, we've been waiting for King Mo to be like a huge superstar and or really, really good at, at MMA fighting. Now we turn around. He's two and two in his last four fights, uh, 36 years old. What are we to make of King Mo at this point in his MMA career? Yeah, it seems like the that staff infection where he almost lost his leg was a real turning point for King Mo. Uh, and I don't know if he's ever quite been exactly the same after that. I don't know if it's that, that's just for physical reasons or not. Uh, I also think that before that, back when he was in Strike Force and when he was a Strike Force champ, and he had even kind of a different fighting style. Like now it seems like he's gone back a little bit to being like, okay, I'm a wrestler. I'm going to take you down. Um, and back before, I, I felt like he had like an, an interesting mix. I believe uh, one of our friends once described him as fighting like if you went to a high school wrestling meet, but you told each wrestler that he was allowed five punches to the other guy's face um, and where he would still fight out of that crouch. Uh, but he was a little bit more unpredictable and would times just get get kind of crazy on you and had a little bit more of a uh, like an attacking style that wasn't just based around trying to wrestle people. And maybe that's just some uh, he's going to fight some way against some guys and other ways against other guys. But he was a lot more exciting, I felt like, to watch back then. And now it seems like he is, okay, what do I have to do to, to get through this, get this win, not get knocked out kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, you're right. He's in his mid-30s. He's been doing this a little while. So I'm sure your calculations change. I think he still can generate a lot of excitement before the bell. But I don't know if there are that many people who are super excited about watching him fight these days. Well, his next matchup will be against Ryan Bader, which they went out and announced in the cage at this Bellator event on Saturday night. It was weird because as I was watching Rampage and King Mo fight, I was thinking to myself, man, this looks like a couple of dudes that Ryan Bader would come in there and just clean house against. Uh, and then they go and, and announce Ryan Bader. I assume they were just going to do Ryan Bader against the winner, right? Because they had this thing. They had Bader ready to go coming into the cage. They couldn't possibly have known that, that King Mo was going to win the thing before they actually had it. So, uh, I assume he was just going to fight, you know, Rampage if, if they would somehow entice Rampage to stick around the Bellator cage. Uh, you see him out there though, Ryan Bader just towering over King Mo when they're doing the face off, looking like two guys not in the same weight class. Uh, I don't know, man. I guess he's, they're going to fight on the, uh, the free portion of the upcoming Bellator pay-per-view card, which seems as smart as any uh, spot to put that fight. But at the same time, if I'm a King Mo fan, maybe I, I don't have the highest expectations for what will happen when you get him out there in the in the cage with Ryan Bader. Well, also keep in mind that uh, Mo has fought kind of a lot recently. You know, he fought twice in December where he fought uh, Satoshi Ishii at Bellator, and then he fought in that Ryzen like, New Year's Eve thing where he got knocked out by Krokop. Uh, then he turns around and he fights Rampage here, uh, and he took a couple shots. He, he, you know, he wasn't that close to being knocked out or anything at any point, but, you know, he took a couple shots where you could tell that hurt him, and now he's going to turn right around and fight in June against Ryan Bader, and a, a, a pretty big Ryan Bader, too, as you mentioned. Like, that's, that is a lot of wear and tear for a 36-year-old King Mo. Right, yeah, it's about five fights, uh, in a little over a year, dating back to when he lost to Phil Davis at, uh, Bellator 154 in May of 2016 and, and fought four times the year before that too, in 2015. So you're right. A lot of mileage on the tires there, uh, for King Mo. 
And, uh, yeah, that Bader matchup to me just seems like kind of a tough one with a, a big guy who's going to have a similar skill set and might, you know, similar, similar grappling skill set and might be uh, better on the feet for all we know. Well, although, is it a interesting enough litmus test for you? I mean, if, if Mo goes out there and beats a guy like Ryan Bader. Well, that would be surprising and, and might do King Mo some good. Yeah, do you start to get excited about him? Yeah, I guess so. And I guess if Ryan Bader comes out there and flies through King Mo, then at least you get a win in your Bellator debut, and and uh, you seem like a dangerous guy. I assume uh, using that as a as a stepping stone into a fight against Phil Davis. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. Right now, though, we got Sir Nigel Longstock here today. He's going to lead us in a game at Master Tweet Theater. It'll be exciting to catch up with him. It's been several weeks since we saw him. Uh, he's the kind of guy that could have got up to absolutely anything. Uh, so that starts right now. Well, it's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am very fly. Yeah, it's been a while. You, you seem to have been on walkabout. It's true. I have journeyed throughout the land. I have spoken to many young ladies, some of whom spoke back to me, and I've acquired a new whip. A new whip. Wow. So, Sir Nigel, somehow, not only staying out of the hoosgal, but acquiring new possessions? The two are related, sir. <laughs> okay. Well, I assume since you've had a lot of time to work on it and think about it, this time you've come back to us with a theme that you will honor at least four out of five times. Sir, I am pleased to announce 100% compliance with this week's theme, which is Friends from Around the Globe. Okay. I, You know... Again, Chad, I feel like there's no way he could screw it up, but I also feel like that's part of the what he brings to the show. Yeah, it's like uh, that's the kind of theme that almost anything could fall under it, which it piques my interest to find out how he will screw it up. Yeah, this is how we're going to find out that we're wrong to think anything could fall under it, because he's going to show us the gaps in the wisdom here. Everyone in this episode is from Earth, sir, I assure you. Well, we'll see. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Myopoline, the high-performance supplement that makes you unable to read the labels on other high-performance supplements. Myopoline's patented combination of vitamins, minerals, and antifreezes makes it impossible to focus your eyes, leaving you free to focus on getting huge. You'll see big gains when you combine Myopoline with our sister product, Myo Explode, the patented combination of inert plant fiber, drostanolone, and walrus hormones that's banned by most athletic commissions and many international treaties. But how could you know that? You took Myopoline, and now you can't read. Wink, Myopoline. Excessive winking may cause eye loss. Is this what uh, you all Romero got popped for? Yes, many, many things, including Myopoline. Yeah, I heard you, you saw it. I had to go get an unopened carton of Myopoline. <laughs> Tweet the first. Anyone who touches it immediately loses the ability to see. It's very hard to test. <clears throat> Tweet the first. I'd fight you for free just for principle. Goodness, you're stupid. You real need educated badly. Okay, I feel like this is from the Lauren Murphy and Jessica I back and forth, uh, and they're not really friends, so already I feel like we're on kind of shaky ground with this theme. The question is, which side is it from? 
Is it the Lauren Murphy side or the Jessica I side? I'm going to say, just by playing the Sir Nigel's tendencies, I'm going to say Jessica I. I'm going to agree with that. Final answer. It is, it is Jessica I starting things off easy. Our friend from the United States, somehow. So she's our friend? Oh, yes. Yours and mine and Chad's and dozens of listeners to the Co-Main Event Podcast. Okay, I see how you're going to do this. <clears throat> Tweet the second. I and UFC new contract is being negotiated. I have not allowed the post and the news will be dealt with rumors. What? Indeed, sir. Is there any punctuation in there? Yes. Uh, there are periods of ellipses uh, following. So I'll just read the punctuation. Okay. I read Thank it you. again. I and UFC new contract is being negotiated. Dot, dot, dot. I have not allowed the post and the news will be dealt with rumors! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. What the fuck, Chad? Uh, boy, that's, uh... See, the thing is, Vanderlei Silva is no longer in the UFC. Yeah, that's, that's where I was thinking there. Um, okay, so I guess what I'm going to do is say, screw it, Fabricio Verdum. Yeah, see, that's... I was thinking about something like that. Uh, how about uh, Cyborg? Cyborg Justino. Okay. Both fine guesses, both unfortunately wrong. It is Lee Jinglang. Okay. That person up. He's a featherweight, possibly a lightweight. Maybe even a welterweight? Nope, definitely featherweight or lightweight. Okay. And probably Chinese. And he is our friend? He is, the friend of the podcast, Li Jingyang. I was hoping we would all focus on the around the globe <laughs> portion of the theme rather than getting hung up on friendship. Okay, all right. <clears throat> Tweet the third. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. White and yellow, good match, you know. I like black, brown, yellow, white, anything. You understand? Okay, first of all, I will reiterate again, this is why you spend the extra coin to get a, a noted theatricalist, Chad. Yep. Because of the bwahaha that he really leaned on there at the beginning. It's not easy. Second, I'm going to say that is Teruto Ishihara. That's what I was going to guess, too. Sure it is. Final answer. It is, it is Teruto Ichihara talking, as usual, about having sex with people of various origins. Okay, I guess that one is kind of around the globe. He's our friend, for sure, right? Surely he is our friend. If he were here, you would give him a beer. <laughs> I would insist on it, in fact. <laughs> he, would, he would take a beer. Hmm. Tweet the fourth. <laughs> this, the, you know, there's a, this one's tricky. I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, good. <clears throat> Good day, Tito. I'm a big fan from Down Under. In my opinion, you made MMA and UFC to what it is today. Congrats on all your success. True role model. Okay, I think Sir Nigel's really digging in the vault because I believe that is Tito Ortiz himself trying to pose as a made-up fan. Right, yeah, that's... But that was like... That was a long time ago, right? It was like right? two or three years ago. It was that's... four years ago, in fact. <laughs> What are you trying to pull here? You know, this tweet was brought to my attention by a fan, and I just fell in love all over again. <laughs> well, I guess it is, like, around the globe in a sense. It is. It is. Good day, Tito. Why Why choose Australia? Why not just have a fake fan from Huntington Beach? <laughs> surely, if you say that this person is in Australia, that's so far away, and who could possibly check? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And once you hear good day, I'm sold. Yeah, it's authentic. Good day, you guys. Hmm. Tweet the fifth. Since grade seventh, 
I said my prayer, ate my vitamins, lifted weights, and wrestled my ass off. Fuck you, Hulk Hogan and Dana White. Fuck you. Wow. I, I'm trying to determine whether the tweeter really meant the sincerity that's coming across in Sir Nigel's voice. Do you have any thoughts on this one? Um, could that be somebody like Matt Riddle? Could be. Uh, I'm going to go a slightly different direction and say Ben Askren. Okay. Hmm. Go. Both fine guesses, both potentially ironic, and both wrong. It is Phil Baroni, the oh. poet. The poet's lament. Do you see what he did there? He lulled us. Yeah, he did. He really, uh, and we, weren't even, we weren't even thinking about the poet. He lives in Thailand. And he's definitely all of our friends, in a sense. Oh, yes. Well, I guess that's it. What else you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished work on an exciting project about a team of scientists who journey to an uncharted island in the Pacific where they encounter a 500-foot-tall, 80-ton Marlon Brando. I see. And what's it called? It's called Kong, Skull Island of Dr. Moreau. And what role do you play? I play the guy who tries to shoot him with a gun. <laughs> well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Well, Chad, it seems like for a while now, the young vagabond, sweet and sassy himself, Gegard Mousasi, has been shrugging and quipping about his place in the UFC's middleweight division with a kind of delightful pessimism that I'm really into, talking about how he doesn't know how he's going to get a title shot, even though there's a bunch of tough guys between him and the champion, but the champion is the easiest of them all, and yet, how's he ever going to get there? Well... Here's a good chance to take one step in that direction. He's going to take on former champ Chris Weidman at UFC 210, um, coming up here this weekend at the Key Bank Center in Buffalo, New York. And this one, if the young vagabond can go out there and get a win over even you know a somewhat diminished in, in everybody's eyes Chris Weidman, do you start to take him seriously and think UFC champ, sweet and sassy? Well, I think you're already taking Gegard Mousasi seriously, four wins in a row. Uh, dating back to the end of 2015, uh, and some pretty impressive ones right in a row with the three stoppages over Tiago Santos, Vitor Belfort, and Uriah Hall. Uh, I think, like we talked about the last time Gegard Mousasi fight, he's fight, fought. He's a guy we've all been waiting to break out for a while to see. So to see him take his place among the elite middleweights in the UFC wouldn't necessarily be a surprise, but it would be a pretty huge signpost in the career of Gegard Mousasi, I think, if he beats Chris Weidman, even though Weidman, as you said, comes into this fight with a little bit of a diminished reputation, if not necessarily a diminished skill set, uh, after back-to-back losses to Luke Rockhold and then Yoel Romero, and especially with two, uh, you know, two stoppage losses, I guess I should say, and and uh, especially the one against Yoel Romero where all types of fucking blood was coming out of his head when he got knocked out in the third round at, at UFC 205, so... I think whoever wins this uh, will have a, you know, it'll be a meaningful result for either of these guys, which I think means that we have a good piece of matchmaking here since this is a, an intriguing matchup of styles and a win and, and or a loss that will be impactful for, for either guy. Yeah, and it does start to feel like this, if you were going to go in the direction that the UFC has steadfastly refused to go and just make yourself a middleweight Grand Prix tournament, 
this could easily be an opening round bout in that and be pretty goddamn exciting. Uh, the thing I wonder about Chris Weidman is clearly we're all going to do the MMA thing to him right now. It, the thing where when he was 13-0 and and the middleweight champion, we were pretty sure that he was like the next messiah of the 185-pound class and was going to reign uh, from atop the mountain with a thunderbolt in his hand for all of eternity. Then he loses two fights to two pretty awesome fighters, and suddenly, oh, Chris Weidman? Man, he's trash. Yeah. He was never any good. He was overrated to begin with. Right, yeah, which is, is unfair, and especially uh, for a guy who's still just 32 years old in Chris Weidman. But at the same time, that's one of the reasons why this shapes up as a big matchup against Gegard Mousasi, because if you're Chris Weidman... You don't want to wind up being the Rashad Evans of the middleweight division, right? Oh, Remember, ouch. Rashad Evans went out and knocked out Chuck Liddell, uh, won the title, and we were all like, "Oh, basically, the Rashad Evans era has begun in the light heavyweight, or in, yeah, the light heavyweight division." Fast forward a few years, and it seemed like maybe, you know, Rashad, who obviously is an amazing fighter, but it seemed like he caught Chuck Liddell at the start of the long, slow, painful grind to the end that happened to Chuck Liddell. I think if you're Chris Weidman, you run the risk of looking like you caught Anderson Silva at UFC's 162 and 168 at the start of Anderson Silva's mm. long, slow grind to the and end. And possibly also Leota Machida at the start of his long, slow grind to the end and post-TRT Vitor Belfort at his somewhat more rapid decline. So you want to come out in a guy like Gegard Mousasi, who is 31 years old and ascendant to the middleweight division. If you're Chris Weidman... You want to come out and stop this guy because that would be a big statement win for Weidman, uh, you know, let alone what we already talked about. It would it would mean for Musasi. Uh, it would definitely be you planting the flag and saying you ain't done. Well, and I wonder psychologically, the it seems like this has got to be a tricky one for him because I, I don't know if he was on the, the Fortnite or whatever. I, saw, I recall some interview with him saying you know, that he just felt like he was sick of losing, even though he's only lost twice as a professional, but it's back-to-back -back losses. Uh, and just feeling like, I'm just so tired of this feeling. I, I want to get back to the other feeling. And obviously, three in a row is kind of the, like, historic uh, turning point in a lot of people's minds, like, where, you know, you lose you lose one, anybody can lose one. You lose two in a row, not a great time. You lose three in a row, nail in the coffin, at least as far as, like, public perception goes. You definitely don't want to fall into that if you're Chris Wyman, and yet if you have that kind of psychological burden going into a fight like this, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be a good thing for you. Because, you know, you look at some of these fights, you know, yeah, you lost to Luke Rockhold, you know, maybe made some tactical errors in that fight. Luke Rockhold, though, good fighter. You were beating Yoel Romero before he launches that knee. I could see how, if you're not careful, you could get into a tricky mental space just by going out there and hoping not to lose. Right. Yeah, and Chris Weidman also had a pretty significant injury, right? Didn't isn't he dealing with a pile of trash, Ben Folk style neck at this point? Didn't he miss like a year between the Rockhold fight and the Romero fight? Almost a year, eleven months. I guess it was eleven months exactly. Now he got the surgery that everybody's so so hot on, so maybe that helps. But yeah, it's still a big uh, a big moment for him, I would think, against uh, Gegard Mousasi for all of the reasons uh, that we said already. Of course, Ben, the elephant in the room here for the middleweight division writ large is that we think as long as uh michael bisping doesn't decide to pull his offer to fight george st pierre off the table uh 
in exchange for, as I believe I saw someone say on Twitter, diving face first into a wood chipper for, I would add, <laughs> less money to fight Yoel Romero. Significantly less money. Uh, you're going to have uh, this title fight between Michael Bisping and George St. Pierre. And I guess if you are an actual middleweight fighter, you better hope to God Michael Bisping wins that, right? Because no matter what we think about George St. Pierre, I can almost guarantee you that he's not beating Michael Bisping for the middleweight title and then turning around and being like, okay, what's Chris Weidman and Gegard Mousasi doing? Sign me up to fight <laughs> Yoel Romero because that's what I'm here for. So for either of these guys, you win this, I would think to even have a crack at the 185-pound title at any point during the foreseeable future, you better hope Michael Bisping holds on to that thing. Yeah, or that through some not inconceivable series of uh, circumstances that it becomes a vacant title. Right. I suppose if George St. Pierre won it and then vacated it to go out and fight, well, if he vacated it to do something crazy, like go down and fight Conor McGregor, that might be good for you because then you would conceivably get into a middleweight Grand Prix type situation of which an opening round match we just witnessed. If he turns around and he's going to fight Anderson Silva and we're going to put the 185 pound title on the line, then you got a long wait in yeah. front of you if you are any of these other dudes, which sucks for dudes the most like Yoel Romero and Jacare Souza because they don't have time to wait. At least uh, conceivably, Weidman and Musasi are a little bit more in their athletic prime. True. Although, yeah, I, it's sadly ironic for me that the time when the middleweight division seems like it's never been as stocked with talent, it seems like the the people we think of as that talent stand a, the worst chance in years of actually getting a title shot. Indeed. Wouldn't it be ironic if they put together George St. Pierre, Anderson Silva, and it's just like three years too late and George St. Pierre is the damn middleweight champion instead of Anderson Silva? Well, and then Anderson Silva beats him and insists on a rematch with Michael Bisping. And then at that point, uh, Jacques Array, Musasi, Yuel Romero, get a bunch of guns in a bag and just storm into the, the UFC offices and start taking hostages. Yeah, you're just describing a nightmare scenario for anybody else in the middleweight division. Or am I describing an awesome action film that you and I should sit down and start working on the screenplay for? I'm in. Let's do it and start pitching that. Uh, ben, do you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number three this week. Sure. What is your... Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? Well, you know, you mentioned that it was the granddaddy of them all, the biggest event in pro wrestling uh, calendar, WrestleMania, which meant, of course, that all the MMA sites were flooded, including MMA Junkie, flooded with uh, all the kind of speculative stuff about who could make the leap to WWE, who would be a big star over there. It seems like that's the new version we're doing instead of how we used to do articles about which uh, pro wrestlers could come to MMA. We don't do that anymore after CM Punk for obvious reasons. But I came across this quote. This was from Brock Lesnar's guy, Paul Heyman, the guy who does his talking for him, uh, talking to a uh, some kind of sports podcast. Listen to this quote. Brock is, in his heart, a trained competitor. Now, whether that means he's going to look at this environment and say, you know what, I didn't make the Vikings team in 2004, but I bet in 2017 I can. And just because I can, I'm, gonna, I'm going to just to show people that I want to and I take it. Because when we named him the Conqueror, that's what he is. He's a legit Conqueror. You put a task before him and he conquers it. I really can't tell you it's out of the realm of possibility of Brock Lesnar to say, I'm taking a few months off from WWE. I want to see how many home runs I can hit for the Minnesota Twins. People may laugh at that. Uh, side note, yes, they may. But it's the same people that laughed at him in 2004 when he went for the Vikings camp and he was the last person cut. And that's with a broken jaw, a fractured pel pelvis, and diverticulitis. 
I think what's next for Brock Lesnar besides what's happening in the WWE? Could it be UFC? Could it be another sport? I think it's something he's going to look at and say, I bet no one thinks I can do that. All right, I'm going to conquer that. Are you fucking kidding me? I know it's your job to hype the guy up and everything, but first of all, why does the list of like his injuries just seem to get longer whenever a uh, broken jaw, fractured pelvis, and he had diverticulitis back then? Jesus Christ, let this guy go on a couple more podcasts, and the next thing you know, Brock Lesnar was basically within an inch of being in the NFL Hall of Fame, and he had dang fever. You fucking kidding me? You fucking me? kidding me with this stuff? Also, Man. he's not going to come back. He retired, which meant his whole drug suspension thing got like hit pause on. And he, we know he retired just so he stopped showing up at his house on trying to test him when he's out there throwing around big ass tires or whatever he does on his farm. So it's not like he can just jump right back into the UFC. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? I'd pay good money to see Brock Lesnar in a twins outfit hitting dingers. <laughs> so come on. <laughs> Ben, this week, my argue fucking kidding me is that uh, I feel like we need to cancel April Fool's Day, at least for MMA people on social media, because this shit yesterday got out of control, my friend, with the Tito Ortiz announcing Chuck Liddell versus Tito Ortiz 3 and Carlo Esparza uh, teasing us about Ronda Rousey versus Chris Cyborg and maybe most troubling of all tim kennedy as you and i said when we talked off the air a couple days ago maybe misunderstanding the idea of what april fool's day yeah. is it's just to trick people not so much like attack them yeah so tim kennedy's instagram post says number one ice bucket in the shower on wife not no a trick number two live crawfish on nephew getting dressed just kind of scary number three eight pre-purchased rolls of duct tape being put to good use and then there's the photo is i believe a child uh trussed up with duct tape so, uh, it only counts as April Fool's joke if you manage to like trick the child into doing that to themselves. Right. Somehow. Yeah. That's, uh, it's not what we're doing here. That's a miss, uh, a misunderstanding of what the holiday is all but about. At least it's something different. Like the thing that bothers me about the MMA people and April Fool's is they only know two jokes. Uh, that too. Yeah. One is retirement, fake retirement, which you're going to fuck around and you're going to announce a retirement and people are going to be like, oh, well, hey, congrats to you on walking away when it was time. And you're going to be like, no, no, I was, it, was, it was just a joke. Or, you know, a fake fight that we really wanted to see. And then when you say April Fool's, we're just disappointed. Right. So just shut it down is what I'm saying. Yeah. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, the headlining attraction on Saturday night at UFC 210 in the Key Bank Center, home of the Buffalo Sabres. Naturally. BT dubs. Uh, as everyone listening to the sound of my voice knows, I'm sure, will be Daniel Cormier defending his UFC Light Heavyweight Championship against Anthony Johnson. Now, Ben, considering the kind of down note that we started 2017 on, are we going to consider DC versus Rumble kind of a most anticipated match i mean with two major caveats that we will i assume discuss during this round it does seem like the beginning of the spring uh the the thaw of the kind of down year that we've had so far in 2017 it's not exactly like you know bursting through the wall like the kool-aid man and declaring that you know here we go it's time for all the the big fights to finally come to fruition because you know one we've seen this one before and two there's that other guy that is his shadow looming large over this fight but it does seem like okay 
now we're starting to get back into some of these fights that feel big and meaningful. Yeah, we all know that the primary caveat to this thing is that John Jones, we assume, is going to be back in July uh, and ready to come take that title from either of these dudes. The other caveat, caveat that I would mention is that, at least to me, it feels like we just did this thing. Like It feels to me like these guys just fought, even though you look at the calendar and it's actually damn near two years ago back at UFC 187 when uh, Daniel Cormier beat Anthony Johnson by a third third round submission. Uh, so I guess the, the follow-up question to that, knowing that Daniel Cormier has won two fights after that and Anthony Johnson has won three fights in a row since then, is has anything changed between these two athletes and slash or with Anthony Johnson? Does it matter? I mean, I think it's still essentially the same fight that it was, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it will play out exactly the same or that it doesn't ha hold any interest because saying that it's the same fight it was means that Anthony Johnson stands a decent chance of knocking Daniel Cormier right. out in the that's first the, round. That's the thing about Anthony Johnson. That's why I say with Daniel, with Anthony Johnson, does it matter because, and I guess this is a credit to that guy, man, because... We already saw him get pretty much wore around like a hat after that first round, and yet I still have high interest in watching this fight because we all know Anthony Johnson could go out there and knock any damn buddy out with one punch. Almost knocked Daniel Cormier out the first time. So, yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, since he, you, I still have that image in my mind of Daniel Cormier just getting walloped uh, by Anthony Johnson, kind of being flung to the mat like almost like a little kid, but then all, bouncing right back from that uh, and coming right back at him. And... You know, that seems like a sort of a neurological roll of the dice that you can't guarantee that will happen every time. You can't guarantee that you'll recover the same way every single time after a shot like that. You know, maybe the guy is able to get on you a little quicker and add some follow-ups next time. Maybe you just consciousness does not find uh, like a, your, your feet right under you as quickly as it did the first time. You know, you can't really go in there thinking like, well... I got hit really hard and everything was fine, so I don't have anything to worry about. Yeah, you'd think it would be the exact opposite thing, right? Even though Daniel Cormier is clearly uh, a terrific athlete and a consummate competitor and a smart guy and another guy who you get the impression is a student of this game. Uh, and on top of all that, has the international wrestling credentials to fall back on where, you know, at least in his own mind, he's already had thousands of fights before he even shows up. To MMA and therefore isn't the kind of guy who's going to get super nervous about anything. But I would think if it's going to have a psychological impact on you at all, I would think getting punched in the head by Anthony Johnson and being floored by it is only is it that it is more going to reinforce in your mind you do not want to get hit by this person than well you got hit by this person once and you were fine so nothing to worry about. Yeah, and it also though for Anthony Johnson reinforces the uh, kind of a belief that like all right you're not gonna you're probably not gonna be able to do this with one punch you you're gonna need to have something else to rely on you're not just gonna go out there land one big shot and the next thing you know you're light heavyweight champion uh because you already saw what happened there and you gotta be prepared to what are you gonna do in round two what are you gonna do in round three if you get there with, with daniel cormier and i mean that's tough because it seems like I can't tell how much of it is just that this narrative that we have come to believe about Anthony Johnson, that he's really dangerous early on, but if you don't get knocked out, that you could wear him down and you could break him mentally. Uh, and how much of that is just that Daniel Cormier is exactly that kind of dude who would excel and break most people mentally. Uh, 
I don't know. I mean, I just I feel like if you are Anthony Johnson, you have to find a way to still believe in what you do well, but be prepared to have to do a bunch of other stuff, too. Yeah. And in that regard, Anthony Johnson is kind of a strange case because, you know, basically since he decided to uh, shit can the the terrible experiment of cutting all the way down to welterweight or middleweight uh, and and except the mantle of basically being a light heavyweight slash heavyweight back in 2012, the only dude he has lost to is Daniel Cormier. And he has run off a bunch of wins uh, over an impressive grouping of opponents. Uh, So he's been really, really good. And yet I feel like we still think of him, and I think correctly, since we have not been proven wrong yet, we still think of him as a almost Vitor Belfort style guy where you're like, well, if you can get him into deep water, he's going to tire out. Uh, and he's not going to be as dangerous at that point as he is in the early going. Uh, and yet, you know, years and years into this thing, it feels like uh, a blueprint that Anthony Johnson can't disprove at this point. Yeah. Well, I don't know. If that's, That is a good kind of thought experiment is what would it take for Anthony Johnson to disprove that? Right. Yeah. Well, Anthony, if well, and maybe the flip side of that coin is if Anthony Johnson comes out and through, you know, some way or another is able to just fight like a bat out of hell for 25 straight minutes or 15 straight minutes, whatever he needs to do. Is there a person walking God's green earth that would have a prayer and stopping him? Because he is a dangerous, dangerous man. And like, it's kind of like the only thing you can do is tire him out and then, you know, break him mentally and beat him by submission in the third round or whatever. Well, yeah, because if you go out there, if you're Anthony Johnson and you land that right hand and this time Daniel Cormier doesn't get up, People are, they're going to still think you're the same guy, just that this time it worked. Right. And, you know, they, they might not be convinced that it would work if you guys fought a third time. They definitely wouldn't be convinced that it would work against John Jones, although, you know, at least it would be enough of a X factor to sell a fight against John Jones. And, you know, that's one of the things the UFC really needs when it comes to him is convincing somebody that, okay, this guy is a legitimate fresh challenge for him. Um, so in the near term, it wouldn't be all that bad. But, you know, imagine how many of those he'd need to pull off before right. people start to think like, okay, this is a, a legitimate way for him to be. Yeah, in spite of all that, though, is Anthony Johnson a more interesting perspective matchup for John Jones than Daniel Cormier is? Just because we already saw Daniel Cormier and John Jones fight each other at UFC 182 back in January 2015. I feel like we already know how that fight goes between Daniel Cormier and John Jones. And then you got Anthony Johnson, who at least would be a fresh matchup, as you said, and brings that X factor of, of just packing around bricks in both of his hands. Like, would you be more excited to see Anthony Johnson fight John Jones at this point? Or would you be more excited by the notion of a Daniel Cormier, John Jones rematch? You know, that's somebody asked me a question for the mailbag column last week. And one of the things that I had to admit was Daniel Cormier would do a better job of selling that fight. You've already got a lot of history there. You, you know you got plenty of sound clips and uh, highlight clips to pull from there. I'd also be really interested to see like if John Jones has to come back now. We saw when he came back against uh, Ovent St. Preux and you thought, well, Daniel Cormier was even sitting in that cage tie going, I think I beat this version of John Jones. I think that would be an interesting question to see an answer to. And I feel like against Anthony Johnson the question would still basically be, can he land one big punch? Like, can John Jones get knocked out by one big shot? Uh, that's just not quite as interesting for me as can somebody who has already met him once, been beaten by him, figure it out and exploit you know whatever 
rust may exist after everything John Jones has been dealing with. All right, well, let's do uh, just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, this week, uh, I'm just saying, we talked about this earlier. You mentioned the difference between legitimate athletics and scripted performance, a la what we get in WWE, and that being that in WWE, you can control a lot of the factors. Uh, And one of the factors that you would think you would be able to control if you are scripting and premeditating the outcomes of this thing is how long the goddamn pay-per-view is. And yet, Ben, (laughs) WrestleMania, just the pay-per-view version, was over five hours long. I'm sitting there watching it from five o'clock in the afternoon until after 10 o'clock in the one true time zone. So I guess this week I'm just saying, man, if you can control how this thing goes, get me in and out in under the amount of time that you promised me that we would be there. I'm just saying. Just saying. Which Chad, I'm just saying, did you see the pictures of Mark Hunt's new tattoo? Oh, did I? Yes. It's a, a chest tattoo. And by that, I mean his entire chest. Seems to be like three skulls wearing uh, sort of like samurai helmets. Um, now, one thing I'm just saying is, if you had just showed me the picture and tried to convince me that this was not a new tattoo, that Mark Hunt just had this all along, you might be able to do it. You might be able to trick me. Uh, just because I would see it and be like, yeah, I guess that seems like something Mark Hunt would do. Uh, but also, this is a new tattoo, and your boy Mark Hunt just turned 43. 43 years old, rolling into the tattoo parlor saying, you know what I want? Three huge skulls right across here. I'm just saying... If you're the tattoo artist, even if you think it might be a bad idea, there's no way you're going to say that. You're going to say yes, Mr. Hunt. No, you're you're putting whatever tattoo Mark how, Hunt wants. Exactly. How would you on... like the shading on these skulls that you would like me to put on your body? And then you're praying to God it comes out good enough for him, right? Like that it meets his approval. Also, maybe if you're the kind of dude who's getting that tattoo at 43, you know, and the thing that people always would say to you about tattoos, like, oh, well, how will it look, you know, when you're when you're an old man? You're planning. You're not really planning on getting that far. I think. Just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 210 and to talk about more of the ins and outs of the mixed martial arts world. We assume stuff will happen. There will be stuff to talk about. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. See, I think maybe the more conservative approach is do one skull. Start with one skull and see how you feel about it. You can always add the other skulls later. You do realize that you just uh, offered that Mark Hunt take the more conservative approach? Then you can't take skulls away. It's like putting salt in a, in a dish. You can't take it out. Sure. I'm saying you don't want to give Mark Hunt that. That's the thing that crosses.